Hello, everyone. This is Michelle Birdie, and you're listening to the Wordsworth from the Moscow Times. About a thousand years ago, give or take 500 years, some Greek traders came to the southern part of what is now Russia. They brought with them a very tasty grain from the east. Because Greeks brought it, Russians called it Greeciski's Lak, Greek cereal. Today, it is commonly called Grichka, something like Greeky. About 150 years ago, this grain began to arrive on American shores in the bags of people from Eastern Central Europe and the Russian Empire. They made it into kasha, porridge. But the English speakers thought that kasha was the name of the grain itself. So they called it kasha in the U.S., even though it already had a name in English, buckwheat groats. And since some of those bags with grichka belonged to Jewish immigrants, and some of those Jewish immigrants made delicious little pies called kasha knishes they sold from handcarts, Americans decided that kasha also known as grechka, also known as buckwheat groats, was the proprietary food of Jewish people. To this day, they sell this grain in the Jewish food section of grocery stores. And since those same Jewish immigrants shared their former neighbor's fondness for borscht, Americans thought borscht, spelled with a T in the U.S., was Jewish too. In fact, they called a region north of New York City that used to have vacation hotels catering to Jewish families the Borscht Belt. The moral of the story. Food travels, and as it travels, it gets new names and becomes associated with whichever national group happens to bring it to a new place. Is it any wonder that people argue about who ate what, when, and where? This week, there has been some arguing about borscht. Who invented it? Was it first a Russian or Polish or Ukrainian or Lithuanian soup? Did one national group invent it, and did another national group appropriate it or claim it for its own when travelers brought it? I decided to look into the subject from the point of view of language, thinking that the first ethnic group that named it would have created it. But I soon discovered that a form of the word borscht is native to more than half a dozen languages. How can that be? Here's how. A long time before there were nation states or even perhaps the nationalities we know today, the people who lived on lands stretching from the Black Sea all the way north through today's Baltic states spoke what is called Proto-Baltic Slavic. That is, linguists have reconstructed a language that they posit people spoke up to about 1000 BC, before they moved, settled, and developed their own dialects that would eventually become the different languages of Russian, Ukrainian, Lithuanian, and so on. During that time period, linguists think there was a word something like borsktis. Of course, I have no idea how it was pronounced because I wasn't alive 3,000 years ago. This word meant something sharp, 
after 1000 BC, when some of the languages had broken off into Proto-Slavic, the precursor of Belarusian, Russian, and Ukrainian, they called a plant with sharp leaves something like borsh. Again, I'm guessing on the translation, guys. This plant was similar to today's borshevik, common hogweed, the edible relative of the dangerously poisonous giant hogweed. In some regions, the plant borsh might have been an early version of cow parsnip, a relative of hogweed. And then, as these hogweed-eating people moved and developed their own languages, they kept eating the plant, and they called it their version of that ancient name. For example, in 966, the Polish chronicles describe how the plant barszcz was used as the basis for an excellent soup prized in Poland, Lithuania, and Russia. In 1547, borsz was praised in the Russian domastroy, domestic order. Sibiri borsza vozli zabora, zakwasivo i podgatov kzimia. Pick the hogweed by the fence, ferment it, and put it up for winter. This sour liquid was used to make the soup. It seems that folks all over Central and Eastern Europe, up through the Baltics and back down through Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, were all making some kind of soup out of a plant called borsh. Now, they may have been cooking up a storm, but they weren't writing cookbooks or even scribbling recipes on birch bark to send their relatives in a distant village. So it's impossible to know what these various forms of the soup, borsh, were like. Meanwhile, that proto-language was happily developing into different distinct languages. Two sources I found write that in what is now Ukraine, by the 18th century, the term borsh meant beet kvass, which was used in a soup also called borsh. And later we know that beets became almost essential for the soup borscht in Ukraine. But here's a fun fact. That old, old version of Ukrainian beet borscht was pale yellow. According to culinary historian Pavel Sutkin, until the 15th or 16th centuries, beets were yellow or white, and they only turned red after plant selection. And then, according to Olga Hercules in her cookbook, Summer Kitchens, once beets were red, the soup was a deep burgundy color, much, much darker than it is today. So why is that? It's because the soup had yet to go through its next metamorphosis when the Americas sent over kartoffel, potatoes, and pomidori, which were also called tomati, tomatoes. These changed the taste and, importantly, the color of borscht in Ukraine. And while we're here, note the names. Potatoes came to Russia via Germany, kartoffel, 
and tomatoes arrived from several countries, from Spain, tomate, France, pomme d'amour, and Italy, pomodoro. Another change occurred when the Soviet Union was formed. Beginning in the 1950s, cookbook authors and publishers made their own decisions about the origin of dishes, and they also altered and sometimes homogenized some recipes to make them easier to cook and more appetizing to the many diverse national groups inhabiting the enormous country. Now, barshi encompass hundreds of soups that are similar only in the way they are prepared. A variety of vegetables are sautéed separately and added to a broth made from meat, poultry, fish, mushrooms, or vegetables. But back to the argument. With so many versions of this ancient soup made all over the region, can borscht be given the UNESCO status of part of the intangible cultural heritage of Ukraine? My opinion? Sure! Red beet Ukrainian borscht served with chesnochnya pampushki, these garlicky rolls, is definitely part of the Ukrainian cultural heritage, although it is blessedly not intangible. But, you shout, what about those other barshi? Why can't Poles submit barsht as their national intangible cultural heritage? Or why can't Russians submit a regional borscht recipe? Who said they can't? There's no reason why each country with a beloved, unique, celebrated version of borscht should not get it recognized. Because there's always plenty of borscht to go around. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this weird edition of the Wordsworth, and if you check out the Moscow Times online, I hope you'll consider a contribution to our fund. We are, as always, grateful to you for tuning in and supporting us. Bye, Siba. До встречи на следующей неделе. Пока.